If you have your Bible, turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 3. Let me just say, while you're getting there, how grateful I am for uh, Pastor Brandon and his ministry and our student leaders um, who were hosting uh, men, boys and girls, you know, men and young men and young women at the uh, Dean Al's uh, weekend. And um, Brandon gave me a brief uh, update this morning, which reminded me of a couple of things, how thankful I am for him and his theological understanding, his love for students, um, uh, but, but also that we have so many people who are willing to give up their weekend, essentially, to host uh, teenagers. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, as we, we launch into our uh, discussion today, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 17, by the way, so the whole chapter. Let me, let me ask you a question. Um, how many of you like to be surprised? I don't, I don't have a surprise for you, but I'm wondering if you like to be surprised. In other words, if someone were to prepare for you this, uh, a surprise birthday party or surprise, I don't know, graduation party, or you're whisked away on this trip that you have no idea about, that really energizes you. That, that gets you excited. You love that sort of thing. I'm sure that describes some of you. Uh, Lynn raised her hand. Um, now, how many, of you, how many of you hate to be surprised? You say, look, you say, don't plan anything for me, right? Don't plan any surprise parties. Uh, don't take me on any trips that I don't know where I'm going or how to pack. Um, you tell your kids, if you have news for me, don't wait for me to hear it from somebody else. If it's bad, whatever it is, just tell me. I don't like surprises. I think, um, of course, there's a, there's a spectrum on which people fall, but I think there are some people who just cannot stand surprises and some people who love surprises. And I was kind of persuaded as I looked at the passage this week that the Apostle Paul may have been in that, that camp that, that doesn't like surprises. Because as he writes to Timothy, again, he's writing from prison in Rome. Timothy is this uh, much younger church planter in Ephesus. He wants to prepare Timothy for all the things that will await him in, in ministry. And these are things that, you know, it's a very ominous uh, sounding passage, but there is, uh, there is great uh, hope in there as well. And, and really what this is about, at least in, in large part, is instructing us as believers how we are to spend our time. What do we invest in and what do we avoid? What do we prioritize and, and what do we, we let go of? Where do we go for strength, encouragement, and power when we are uh, at our wit's end? So that, that's kind of the theme that we're going to see this morning. Let me start by reading verses eight through, or 1 through 8 rather, of 2 Timothy 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. But understand this, again, Paul writing to Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin, sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so also uh, these men oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was with those two men. So Paul's preparing Timothy, of course Timothy's already in the thick of it you know, at this time, 
But he's preparing Timothy for what to expect as he continues to move forward in pastoral ministry. He wants Timothy to be ready, not to be surprised of the challenges that he will continue to face in what Paul calls the last days. Now, when we read that phrase, the last days, um, we might be inclined to think of some, some time in the future in some post-apocalyptic setting on a scorched earth where, you know, uh, dilapidated buildings and people hiding out. And we might think of something that we might see in a science uh, fiction movie or maybe we see in a video game. Um, but the period known as the last days uh, actually began when Jesus was born. So we're actually living in the last days. The last 2,000 years are what the Bible would refer to as the last days, the time between the coming of Jesus and the return of Jesus. So this is not describing some future dystopian state, right? This is, this is our age that we're talking about. And what are the characteristics of our age? Where Paul has listed these, the way that people will be, the way that people are, and will continue to be in the last days. I could, we could go on and explain and give examples of all of these different characteristics, but I don't think it's necessary. Lovers of self, so rather than lovers of God and and, and neighbor, they're actually lovers of self. Lovers of money, greed would be rampant. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. It's interesting to me that among this list of devastating sins, things like brutal and, and uh, arrogant, abusive, and so on, we see this ungrateful is in that list. Ungrateful. A lack of gratitude can be as destructive and as telling as some of the most horrific sins that we can imagine. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. It's harmful enough for a person to be heartless and to be slanderous, but then you throw in without self-control, and it is uh, increasingly deadly, right? Because the person who heartlessly slanders and cannot control himself ends up destroying everyone in his or her path. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Treacherous is a word that was used to, to describe Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. And if you've ever been betrayed by somebody you love or somebody you thought really loved you, you, you know uh, how devastating this characteristic is, uh, treacherous. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That last one is a real scathing rebuke. These folks are hypocrites. Religious showmen, now, they may have had big ministries and they may have garnered huge followings, but they really had denied the power of the gospel, denied uh, Jesus, and therefore were nothing more than actors or performers. They were not proclaimers of good news. They loved the idea of religion. So they loved, you might say, getting dressed up on Sunday and being seen in their, in their outfits and, and, and maybe going through some of the rituals. They even loved some of the practices of religion. But their hearts were spiritually dead. They thought that because they were religious, they were righteous. But such was not the case. They were strangers to Jesus in that they didn't know him and he didn't know them. I've had some people like that, frankly, in the churches that I've served over the years. Love religion. And love talking about religious things. And love the practices of religion but not a deep love for God or the things of God or the people of God. Paul goes on to say that these are folks who creep into households and capture weak women. Now, this is not chauvinistic language or, or women bashing. 
This is just a picture of the historical reality that, that Paul is addressing. There were plenty of widows in that day and age um, who were just barely getting by, and they were weighed, weighed down with fear and guilt and anxiety, and uh, they were susceptible to con men. And these false teachers would actually target these women. One historian writes, Timothy's opponents were deceptive religious charlatans who, like many religious frauds, found disproportional success among the women. This was confirmed a few years later by a couple of church historians of, of that day, including Justin. Now, what does Paul tell Timothy to do concerning these people? Verse 5b, avoid such people. Avoid such people. So we've talked about throughout this letter how it's about handing down the deposit of the gospel um, and also, of course, persevering in our own faith so that we have something to hand down. And Paul will say that that requires investing time, spending time with the right people and actually avoiding the wrong people. So here's our first point this morning as it relates to our, this, how we spend our time our energy and time should be spent on those who are at least open to the things of God rather than trying to win those who are hard-hearted. If we're going to pass down the deposit of faith, if we're going to have this multiplying ministry, then it actually matters who we spend our time with. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I thought we were supposed to pursue those who were far from God. I thought we were supposed to go after and pray for and minister to those who are living lifestyles that are completely ungodly. And I, and I say to you, if that's what you're thinking, you're exactly right. This is not a, a call to avoid ungodly people. The people who are living lifestyles that make religious people blush are the very kinds of people we are to pursue. And I've, I've said before and gotten some minor criticism for it, but I think every Christian should have at least a couple of friends uh, that prompt other Christians to say, are you really, you're friends with him? You're friends with her. What are you doing spending your time with him? I think we need to have people like that in our lives. So 2 Timothy 3 is not a call to avoid evil, wicked, godless people. These are the very people that Jesus came to save, among whom we used to be. This is a call to avoid those who are persistently, who persistently scoff and mock the things of God, the recalcitrant, we might say, the hard-hearted, the mocker, the pompous. Now, I mentioned before the Christian life is filled with tension, right? And so this is hard for a lot of personality types. It's hard for me at times because I, be, I want it to be nailed down. I want it to all make sense. I want there to be answers to the questions. But we have to live with tension in the Christian life. There's so many areas we have to embrace this. For example, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We say, okay, well, which one is it? It's Christ who holds us fast, and yet we are commanded to hold fast to Him. You see the tension there. We are set free from sin, and yet we continue to yield to sin. We, have, we are saints, and yet sinners. We are of great worth. And yet, spiritually speaking, we are wretched apart from Christ. And here, we read in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy that false teachers are to be corrected. And then chapter 3, they are to be avoided. So we ask the question, well, which one is it? And the answer, of course, is it all depends. It all depends on what the false teachers and what those people who oppose us are actually like. 
The opponents that Paul tells Timothy to confront in chapter 2 seem to be the ones who are at least open to the discussion about the things of God. Paul says in chapter 2 that God may grant them repentance leading to the truth. So at least there's a degree of receptivity there. There's a, there appears to be a willingness to listen. But the folks that Paul lists in chapter 3, they appear to be hard-hearted scoffers, completely self-centered, mockers of the gospel, verse 7. They're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And those are the folks that Timothy is to avoid. Why? Because there's no benefit in having these discussions with them. Their minds are made up. Their hearts are hardened. There are some people in our lives that we would do well to discontinue discussions with until at least they are repentant or show some level of humility. There are some people in your life right now, and I don't know who they are. Maybe you do. Maybe you can't think of anyone at the moment. There are some people in your life right now that you should probably say to them, please stop texting me. Please stop giving me things to read. Please stop arguing with me. Stop baiting me. Right? I, I love you, and I'm not against you, but until you show some humility, this needs to stop. Now, I'm not talking about giving up on them. I'm not talking about ceasing to pray for them. I'm not talking about writing them off. I'm talking about refusing to engage them. In the words of the Apostle Paul, I'm talking about avoiding them. I've got a couple people like that in my life. Very specific, real people. And there was one guy, whenever I would post something on Facebook that was devotional in nature, anything about God, he would reply in the comments section with a real sarcastic uh, comment, just mocking God, and at times mocking me. And so after a while, I had to say to him, I reached out to him, I said, look, I want you to know, one, I'm going to unfriend you on Facebook. Um, two, if I'm ever in your city, he doesn't live around here, if I'm ever in your city, I would love to sit down and have coffee with you, but we're not going to do this anymore. So you're not going to be able to comment on my status anymore. Because he, he actually was a, was a leader in the men's ministry of the church that I once pastored years ago and now is a convinced, uh, aggressive atheist. And I've had conversations with him and we've gone round and round and I've had to come to the point where I say, look, unless you really you show some level of humility or earnestness, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. Again, it's not talking about writing people off, but this is the second time in a short section, two chapters, that Paul has told Timothy to avoid some people. Don't be around them. Don't hang around them. Don't engage them. Again, don't give up on them, but don't continue. No. Maybe you're thinking, well, is this what Jesus would do? And of course, if you read the Gospels, you know this is what Jesus told his followers to do. When he sent his disciples out to the villages, he said, if they refuse to listen to you, and of course this is at the end of a, a longer section, shake the dust off your feet as you leave that city, which was a symbolic gesture, like saying, I, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm washing my hands, I'm, Lord, I'm just committing this person entirely to you, there's nothing else I can do. Now there are others, of course, who believe things and say things and do things who are, that are completely opposite of what the Bible says. And yet, they're open to a conversation. So what do we do with those people? We pursue them. We pray for them. We go after them. Now, it takes tremendous wisdom, of course, to know when, and it's a spirit-enabled wisdom. So if you don't know, you have someone in your life, you know, I don't know, should I keep going with the conversation? Should I avoid that person? 
um, you know, go to the Lord about it and, and ask the Lord for wisdom in it. Now, there's some encouragement. Look at verse 9 again. Um, they, the scoffers, the mockers, those who are characterized by all these things, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as uh, was that of those two men. So speaking of Giannis and Yambres, who tried to duplicate Moses' miracles and, of course, failed spectacularly to do that, and all those who oppose the gospel and the messengers of the gospel, Paul says they will not get very far, their foolishness will be known to all. Now, this is a word of encouragement to Timothy, but of course it's a word of encouragement to all preachers and really all Christians. And here's what it is. God is sovereign not just over the big stuff. He is as sovereign over our reputations and our ministry success as he is over storms and wars and natural disasters. Sometimes we think, we think about God's sovereignty, we think only in terms of the big things. Yeah, God's sovereign over hurricanes and, and rain and, and global uh, uh, pandemics and so on, but my reputation, that I have to manage. Well, God's actually sovereign over your reputation. God's sovereign over your success. God's sovereign over uh, the, the things that people say to, about you. And so what, what Paul wants Timothy to know is these people are not going to get very far. Their foolishness will be made open. Everybody will know about it because the sovereign God will make sure of it. Now look at verses 10 through 14. You, however, in contrast to all of these uh, false teachers and heretics and so on. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my practice, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So, lest Timothy be surprised at the sort of opposition he may encounter, Paul says, all who, live a God, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I would have expected him to say, all who preach the gospel will be persecuted. I would have expected him to say, all who talk about Jesus will be persecuted. But he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it will be, in part, the lifestyle of the Christian that brings on persecution. You say, what does that mean? Well, it will be the moral standards and convictions by which we live that will invite the ire and indeed persecution of those around us. Uh, one theologian, turn of the century theologian, William Barclay writes, if anyone proposes to introduce into his life a loyalty which surpasses all earthly loyalties, then there are bound to be clashes and collisions. So, so to follow Jesus, of course you know this if you're a follower of Jesus, is to live in such a way that that clashes with the world system of values. And the world, increasingly so, will not tolerate those who organize their lives, who center their lives around values different than theirs. And Paul says it's not going to get any better actually. Paul says, verse 13, evil people will go from bad to worse, while at the same time, here's that tension again, God is advancing his kingdom. 
So you have these two things that we have, to, we have to recognize that are at work somehow together in tension. God is advancing his kingdom, which he's promised to do until Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated. What that means is we see this in our lives. God is bringing people to saving faith. God is reconciling people who are in strange relationships. God is softening the hearts of those who want nothing to do with him. God is going after people, right? God is bringing about forgiveness and reconciliation, while at the same time, things are getting worse and worse in terms of the world's perspective. You say, how can both be going on at the same time? Well, it speaks to the ever-widening gap between kingdom values and worldly values. There are so many new moral dilemmas we're facing now, and I understand. I've got a friend who's a historian, PhD from Cambridge, travels all over. He says everything is cyclical, and I get that on some level, right? But there are things just sort of, they, you know, we were seeing the same things over and over again in a cycle, but there are some new moral dilemmas that we're facing, areas like marriage and family and sexuality and gender and, and so on that we've really never faced before at this level. And, of course, it's exacerbated by social media. The way of the kingdom and the way of the world will become increasingly separated and polarizing. So what do we do? Well, continuing with that theme of being careful how we spend our time, Paul reminds Timothy, look, you've been with me and you've seen me and you've seen my love and you've seen how I've responded. You've seen how I've been persecuted. You've heard my teaching. You've been around me at all those times in my life. You've seen all of that. You've seen how the Lord has delivered me from all of those situations and, and then he says, you followed me in verse 10, and then in verse 14, remember what you've learned. In other words, keep on following what you've seen and what you've heard and what you've learned. Paul says, avoid these people, but imitate me. So here's our second point. Christ followers who model kingdom values and persevere in gospel truth are to be sought out, ought to be sought out and imitated. To put it more directly, you know, we, we, we talk about our mission as making disciples and treasuring Jesus, becoming like him together and sharing his gospel. Well, that's, that happens as much by teaching, which is important, but also by modeling and imitating those who have walked further down the road with us, those who have walked with Jesus longer, those who have, in, have seen the gospel penetrate their lives at a deeper level. We follow those. We seek those people out and we imitate them. And of course, understanding Every person who will be imitated is imperfect, um, but we find those, again, who, who are more spiritually mature, who've walked longer with Jesus, and we imitate them. Where do we tend to go if there's something that we don't know how to do? Well, we, go, we, go to, we Google it, right, or we go to YouTube, and you can find on YouTube, there's almost, I don't, there's almost nothing you can't uh, find instructions for on YouTube. I just looked uh, this morning just to add, find a couple of real examples on things you can find instructions to do. I, thought, what? I just Googled strangest things you can you know, learn to do on YouTube. And um, a couple of them I thought were interesting. You can, you can learn on YouTube how to zombie-proof your car. Anybody done this? No one shook the... What are you going to do when a zombie apocalypse comes, right? You've not zombie-proofed your car. Um, you can learn how to be a ninja. Any of our students, uh, you, if you watched, if you did any ninjas among us, um, you can learn how to be a ninja. You can learn how to annoy telemarketers. This could be this could be fun, huh? I didn't watch that. I didn't watch that video, but I was actually talking to a young pastor uh, maybe three months ago, who confessed to me that he sometimes spends hours in the evenings, hours, 
watching a Scottish hoof trimmer. A Scottish hoof trimmer. Now, he doesn't have any cows. He doesn't have any cattle, any livestock. But he said, I just cannot look away from this guy. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. How do you, and I don't have any idea how you would, how you trim hooves, nor do I have any interest in that. Um, but this guy, he, he's learned to do this, even though he says he's never going to do it. He know, he's, he's an expert hoof trimmer through YouTube. I mean, you, there, there's, there's almost, again, there's almost nothing you can't learn how to do by way of YouTube. But there are some things, the things that matter most in life, that you can only learn well by watching someone else do them how to lovingly and courageously lead your family if you're a man. You can read books on it, and there's some really good books on that. But if you spend time with somebody who is lovingly, sacrificially, and courageously leading his family, you'll learn more in an hour with that person than a stack of books. How to gently respond to those who erupt at you with anger. You can read, you know, count to ten and breathe deeply and all those things, and I'm not disparaging any of those things. But if you want to learn how to respond to somebody who, who comes at you with anger, how to resp- respond to evil with good, watch somebody who does it well. How to share your faith, all kinds of great books on that. But just sit down with lunch with someone and, and have him or her tell you how, how he shares his faith, how she shares her faith. How to grieve with those who are grieving. As a young pastor in late 20s with multiple degrees. I had no idea how to grieve with someone who was grieving. It wasn't until I followed those who were farther along in their faith, who were more mature, who had grieved with other people, that I learned how to do this. And I'm still not great at it, but I've been around enough people, and my wife is phenomenal at this, being around other people, men and women, who've helped me understand what it's like to grieve with someone who's grieving. You can't learn that in a book. How to mourn with someone who is mourning how to comfort someone tenderly who's hurting. Again, YouTube videos can give us some some good advice, but they can only go so far. What we need is godly people around us to imitate. Those people, again, who we we watch their lives, and we we watch their lives and their doctrine closely, and we say, this is someone that I want to emulate. This is someone I want to be like. This theme of imitation actually runs throughout the Bible. Not indiscriminate following, not blind allegiance, but surrounding ourselves with people whose example, though definitely imperfect, we'd like to emulate. If you're farther along in the faith, if you've been a believer for decades, who's imitating you? Who are you inviting to hang around you and see how you deal with things? Who's been at your dining room table lately for a meal? Who's seen you interact with your your spouse, and your children? Who's seen you handle conflict in a biblical way? If you're younger, who are you seeking after to imitate? Who are you watching in a non-stalking way, right? Who are you paying attention to? Who are you keeping an eye on? Who are you observing how they handle things? Who have you asked to help you? Say, I don't really know how to do this. I'm in a situation right now, I don't know what to do about it. Who have you asked to help? In the book of Philippians, Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, it takes a lot of boldness to say that, doesn't it? Imitate me? Who's ready to say that? Well, what makes Paul or Timothy or anyone else worthy of being imitated 
is that they treasure what matters. They love what's important. They believe in what's true. And so not only will you learn how to handle things, but you will also learn, if it's a godly person, you'll also learn what it's like to repent. What it's like to seek forgiveness from someone. What it's like to live humbly, to care about justice, all of these things. Paul makes it clear in his instructions to Timothy in verse 14, remain in what you have learned and what you've been convinced of. Then he clarifies what that means. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when Paul talks about the sacred writings in in verse 15, he's talking about the Scriptures. Now, of course, what Scriptures did Timothy have? The Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament, which he says is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying is, in other words, the primary concern of not just the New Testament, of course, but the Old Testament, the primary concern in the Old Testament is God's salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is one of a dozen places in the New Testament where we're told that the whole Bible including the Old Testament, is actually about Jesus. How do we remain on solid footing in this uneven climate that we're in, this ever-changing world, the hostility between kingdom values and world and the world's values? By staying in the Scriptures, by testing every philosophy, every ideology, every way of thinking against the Scriptures, and then submitting to what the Scriptures say but also by remembering that it's the Scriptures that teach us not just God's ways, but they testify to Jesus. It's in the Bible that we're pointed over and over to Jesus, who is our substitute and our example. So when all others fail us, when our heroes fall, or we're watching that person we imitate and he does something that uh, we're, we're surprised by, or she sins in a way we would never expected. When our heroes fall and our pastors hurt us and our mentors blow it, we have this steady anchor as we sing in Jesus. In fact, Paul says, he's the point of the whole Bible. He's the point of the whole Bible. And then likewise, when we fail, when we hurt others, when we fall to temptation, when we ignore God's teaching, when we provide a very poor example for someone to imitate, we look to Jesus, the point of the Bible. And the scriptures are not only, only about Jesus, about Jesus, but they speak specifically to the suffering of Jesus, which provided the way for our salvation. You see in those 12 passages, and we're not going to turn to them or even look at them, but those passages which talk about Jesus being the point of the Bible, the point of the Old Testament, they're usually in the context of the suffering of Christ. In fact, when Jesus explained the scriptures to the guys on the, the road to Emmaus, And they didn't understand what the scriptures were all about. Jesus said, the text says, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Scripture is about, are about Jesus, his suffering as part of the central part of God's plan of salvation. So, you know, we look at the world, and I know I do this all the time, and we look at the world and we see the evil going on and we see things getting, you know, by all accounts from bad to worse. And we, think, we see the things we're going, that are going on in the world, things we don't understand, things that make no sense at all, things that are illogical, and, and they have to be evil. It would be easy for us to look at the world from a very self-righteous mindset. The world is so messed up and what's wrong with people and why is the world spinning out of control and how can they do that and so on. And we think, you know, well, but thankfully we've got it right, right? I mean, the world is so messed up, but we've got it right. It would be easy to think that the evil is out there and what's good is in here. But the scriptures tell us that what's bad is actually in here, in our own hearts. Our hearts are selfish, corrupt, greedy, impatient. Our motives are impure. Our ideals, we think they're so pure, right? Our ideals are so lofty. Our ideals are self-serving. We're constantly falling short of that standard that God has called us to, which is nothing short of perfect and complete obedience. And so lest we look around and we say, oh, the world's so bad and things are so evil and it's getting bad, it's getting so much worse than it's ever been, but we have the answers. The Scriptures also remind us of how sinful we are. But the Bible also tells the story of God's plan to save the world of a loving father who sent his son to buy back a world enslaved by sin. You know, again, in terms of faulty thinking, we sometimes think of God as this wrathful God and Jesus as the loving son who came to the earth to live and die for his people. Now, that's true as far as it goes, but the reality is, the full truth is, the whole plan of salvation, which centers on the person of Jesus, was the plan of a loving father. So it's not as though the father had to be sort of coerced into this plan of salvation. God the Father wasn't a reluctant participant in your salvation. Your salvation was his idea. How many times do we read in John's gospel that the father sent the son? Over and over again, Jesus was sent to the earth to suffer so that we could be made right with God. Jesus fully obeyed all of God's commands so that we could be looked at as those who have fully obeyed all of God's commands. That's the story of the Bible, that plan of salvation. That's what it's all about. If you are in Christ this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, you belong to the Father. And the Father is not disappointed in you this morning. The Father is not against you this morning. The Father didn't have to be persuaded by Jesus to love you. He's always loved you. You are forgiven. You have been made new. You have a glorious eternal future with God that will last forever. The story of redemption, that story of redemption is the story of the Bible. So Paul says, Timothy, yeah, stay away from mockers. Avoid people who just want to endlessly debate. Instead, imitate godly people that you've watched, that you've learned from. But then he goes a step further and says, but all of those, essentially, he says, all of those will disappoint you at one juncture or another. Except one. Here's our final point. All human examples will fail us. 
But the Scriptures point us to Jesus, through whose unfailing obedience we have salvation. So, you know, it, it hurts to think this way, but it's true. Your friends will fail you, and you will fail your friends. Your parents will fail you, and you will fail your parents. Your pastors will fail you, and you will fail your pastors. But not Jesus. He will never fail you. In fact, his faithfulness is what has secured for you God's forgiveness. And, God is, and Paul says that God's so concerned about this message, this Christ-centered message, this glorious story of salvation, that he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, that he actually breathed it out. All Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, this is a famous passage, of course. You've you know, probably heard it many times. And it's typically turned to by those who want to defend the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. And please hear me. This passage absolutely speaks to that. The sacred writings, the Holy Scriptures, are breathed out from God. They come from the very mouth of God and are in every way authoritative, inerrant, sufficient, and so on. But that's not really Paul's intent here. Paul's intent is not to give Timothy a a defense of the inspiration or the inerrancy of Scripture. Paul's point was to implore Timothy to keep feeding himself the Scriptures by which he would be feeding himself Christ, the gospel, which is God, with the God-breathed point of all the Scriptures. So he wasn't saying, okay, look, when you encounter that person who denies the inspiration of Scripture, go to this verse. And, and we can do that. That's a fair thing to do. But Paul's point is to Timothy, keep taking in the Scriptures. They were breathed out by God to give you Jesus. Martin Luther once said, remove Christ from the Scriptures and there's nothing left. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, don't take that literally, doesn't mean there's not wisdom or instruction or guidance in the Scriptures. To be sure, the gospel is not the only thing that we need or glean from Scripture. Now, it's central, it's primary, it's of chief importance, but that doesn't mean we ignore the wisdom, the instructions, the songs, the law, the correction, the history, all of those things in Scripture. There's value. Of course, we need those things. It is in Scriptures that we find principles for parenting and marriage and wise financial stewardship and how to be a good friend and how to prioritize work and how to handle conflict and how to save money for your children, how to love your neighbor, how to deal with suffering. Those things are all in the Scriptures. And that guidance is invaluable. Verse 17 is not a throwaway phrase. The Scriptures are profitable for all these things so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. The Scriptures provide God-breathed instructions for how to do the work God's called us to do. We never want to diminish that. But, but, providing guidance on how to live is not the primary purpose of the Scriptures. All the guidance we find in the Scriptures, we welcome it, we approach it humbly, we're taught by it. But all of the guidance we find in Scriptures must be considered in light of verse 15. The Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's what makes them most profitable. 
That's what makes them life-changing. That's what makes them transformational. That's what makes them saving. Indeed, that's the purpose for which they were written. To take us to Jesus. Because all the good works in the world will not gain for us God's forgiveness. Now, again, I, I, whenever I talk about these things, I, I feel like I have to double back and, and make sure that I'm being clear. There, there are how-tos in the Bible. But it must be remembered, there's no hope in the how-tos. There's no hope in action-driven application. Only frustration, potentially emptiness, if not accompanied by the gospel. There's no hope in the law apart from the gospel. There's no hope in the imperatives apart from the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ. True application is always faith-driven. The how-tos always start with and end with the biggest to-do, so to speak, believe in Jesus, right? Remember when they came to Jesus in John 6 and they tried to trap him? They said, yeah, but Moses gave us the works to do. Moses told us what to do. What do you say? And Jesus said, well, here's the work that God's called you to do. Believe in the one he has sent. And of course, they didn't like that. They wanted, they wanted an action plan. They wanted a to-do list. And Jesus said, no, believe in the one that he sent. Put your faith in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Here's your hope. I love what uh, Ted Sin said in our training last week on seeing Jesus together, that journal. He said that how we read the Bible is as important as if we read the Bible. Because if we don't read the Bible with the aim to get to Jesus, if we read it so that we can check a box off on our list, if we read it so that we can tell our mom or our kids, I made it through the Bible this year, if we read it so that we can just sort of assuage our guilt, what have we really done? If we don't read the Bible with the aim to get to Jesus, we're missing the point and might very well end up like the Pharisees who knew the Bible better than anyone in this room, far better, but missed Jesus and therefore missed salvation. So let's continue to see Jesus in the Scriptures. But more importantly than approaching the Scriptures with the right hermeneutic, let's trust in the one who is the subject, the object, the locus, and the hero of all the Scriptures, Christ the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies this morning. And thank you for your loving kindness. And I pray that you would help us to believe what we've heard, to trust and rest in what we've seen in your scriptures. And I pray that this morning, as even as we sing it together, that you would help us to believe that our only hope, our only refuge is Christ and him alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.